as a person who was a pro for a long, long time, uh, where I've travelled the world and seen all these crazy things and lived a crazy life where there are, like, strippers and hookers and just, you know, like in the middle of an orgy or, you know, sometimes you're balling up with billionaires. Um, life as a poker player is relatively boring. Welcome to the uh, Drinks with Jackson podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson. And today uh, in front of me, I've got David Superman Saab. How are you, mate? Oh, I'm awesome today. How are you? Fantastic. The uh, drive down to uh, to Melbourne was quite, quite pleasant, actually. No traffic, just straight down. Got here at, what, 12.30? So, yeah, Mickey Mouse. Did, didn't mutilate any wallabies on the way here? Uh, no, nah, there's actually a fair bit of roadkill on the road. Eh? It's <laughs> not, not good. You know, I, I used to live in the outback once. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Whereabouts? Uh, out, out in the uh, 1,700 kilometres north northwest of Perth. Gee whiz. And um, back there, we have roos uh, where when I came over to Victoria, yeah. I, I thought I, I, saw a, I saw a kangaroo, what you guys call a kangaroo, and I said, that can't be a roo. What the hell is that? That's like a, a miniature kangaroo, yeah. right? And I realised, well, there, there are different type of roos over here because the sort of roos that we have over in WA... Big red. Big reds, yeah. you know, where they are enormous. And when you hit them, right, they will total your car completely. And they're heavy. Yeah. Um, and they're like, uh, I, I think they get as high as uh, maybe nine foot. Uh, they're, so they're monsters. Yeah, I think the biggest I've ever seen was out the back in Rushworth and it's probably seven foot. Yeah. It, it, massive. Yeah. And like just the uh, sheer muscle tone on an animal exactly like that right. was incredible. <laughs> yeah. For the uh, listener's sake, uh, could you give a bit of a rundown as to who you are and what you do? Sure. Okay. Um, I guess uh, we we should probably start with... The poker, or at least maybe how I got into poker. Yeah. Because that's, you know, what uh, the uh, scope of this is. And uh, I came to poker a little bit later in life. Um, I played poker uh, when I was a young'un. Um, so I was exposed to the game, but the game was different then. It was five-card draw. And um, in the early 1990s, um, I used to play in the local casino in Burswood Casino um, uh, when I was 18 you know, and uh, was playing um, there at my first year uni and just trying to hustle up some money because, uh, you know, I had absolutely no money first year, uh, you know, first generation migrant, left home when I was 16, trying to make a life for myself. Um, and it saved me a little bit then and it gave me a bit of a kickstart into life. But I didn't really go into it um, much until after I'd essentially destroyed my life where um, I, I built a company from nothing, from a few thousand dollars and a few secondhand computer parts and listed it um, onto the Australian Stock Exchange and um, turned that few thousand dollar idea and my best mate um, into a company of like $30 million and we listed it. And then um, I guess I was only young then in my 20s and I hadn't the experience to deal with corporate Australia at that time. And, uh, you know, we listed as a tech company and when then we went through a tech crash and uh, we had a big fallout with the board um, and I lost control of my company um, and I spiralled into a level of depression um, and then I was speculating on the stock market and I lost all my millions uh, with the tech crash um, and went through bankruptcy. And was on the bones of my ass, having absolutely nothing to my name. Lost all my houses, all my cars, absolutely nothing again. Um, starting looking at life again at around 30, um, a little over 30. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? You know. And it was so hard trying to look for work as an ex-CEO. Like, no, I wanted to hire an ex-CEO. Like, you know, and, and you seem like an arrogant know-it-all where no one wants to hire a person like that in your company, even if it's at a at a cheaper price point because they feel that you're going to leave or something. And, um, and because I was a bankrupt at the time, I couldn't earn more than a certain level 
Um, and so I was just looking for medium level jobs so I could earn enough to survive. And I found it really hard to find work. And uh, one day I was sitting on my mate's couch and um, just, you know, thinking, oh, woe is me. And suddenly I see a face on TV, a face I recognised. That was a friend from the past. His name was Tino Lecic. And it was actually him and Mel Judah that was playing in this poker tournament. But poker had changed, you know, going from this uh, five-card draw poker that I knew and loved and had had some early success with earlier in my life to this weird game where, you know, you've got two in your hand and five on the board, community cards, and they were playing for big money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I thought, what's this? Because poker in my time had no money in it. And so... I got every book ever written on poker at the time and I started studying and then I turned a doll payment because I was on the doll then um, and put a couple of bucks online, lost it pretty quick smart and then played an online free roll at a site called Interpoker, uh, one that got around about 600 USD which was about 1,000 AUD at the time. It doesn't sound like a lot of money now but at that time it was money that I used to just get ahead a little bit, you know, pay back some of my debts that I had to my mates, buy a little bit better food, and then I, I grinded that up and I play and I took playing a a a prop player online. Now you guys probably don't know what a prop player is. A prop player is kind of like a shill, uh, where a shill is a house player, a player that plays for the house but uses the house money, but a prop player, as in difference to a shill, is a player that plays in a casino but uses their own money and keeps their own wins and losses, but that the casino pays them all of their rake back. And at that time, it was possible to get a prop job online where uh, there were certain rules of how you could play, um, but it was primarily heads up and a maximum of like, three opponents and they, I got 110% of the rake uh, of my own rake. So that ended up if you're playing, you know, a full-time role, four tables at that time, uh, about 150,000 a year, which is, it's big money, you know, as long as you're able to hold the line and not lose money of your own money. So I did that for about six months and uh, I was able to hold my own. And that process is what, trained me to become one of the strongest players in the country and the world at that time. And uh, yeah, that's how I started my life as a pro professional poker player. So how did that change? Uh, obviously now the landscape online is completely different, especially in Australia. Was it 2013? I spoke with Dean Cathy in relation to this, the change of legislation, obviously poker stars veering away from Australia. Um, there wouldn't necessarily be any of those roles left. And you're absolutely right, uh, uh, Jackson. Um, in 2013, those uh, when the new regulations uh, came through, poker in Australia changed drastically overnight. But we were talking back then, uh, that was around about 2003. Oh, gee whiz. So, okay. uh, you know, I had a decade of good poker years in the boom time to make my millions. Yeah. You know, I, I was successful uh, and uh, earned enough money to survive, pay back my friends, build enough of a role. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, when I finished my bankruptcy process um, uh, to actually generate it into a, a second fortune of yeah. millions where I then proceeded to tour the world, you know, and... Uh, play, uh, win a major, been on TV a whole heap, um, been on ESPN, um, was top player of the year in 2008, um, uh, came deep in World Series that year, last Australian standing, last professional standing. Yeah. Um, I was going to say hand-on mob winnings is a little over 600K, with the biggest live cash being 280K. Obviously, that's recorded. Um, and uh, doesn't really account for the cash games and all the other games that are no doubt missed. And you're right, website. Jackson. Um, the majority uh, of money in poker at the time there was made 
in cash games. So if you were not a cash game grinder, uh, you're not really an earner back in those days. Sure. Um, tournaments are always uh, quite lucrative in that the average player level is much lower than in uh, cash games. However, um, because of the variance, um, there is much more um, luck involved in getting uh, positive results. Yep. Whereas if you're a cash game pro, um, back then on a day-by-day basis or a week-by-week basis, you're just going to barely have any losses. So it was just simply a process of going in, doing your hours, staying within your bankroll management plan um, and executing out and just banking the cash. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about bankroll management, but what are your thoughts on the balances between skill and luck in poker and how do you navigate those variances? So, you know, th- that's a great question, Jackson. Um, the, the differences between skill and luck in poker, um, I, I think, is that there's a lot more luck in poker than people really think it is. Because often people who do well in poker, they, they have a lot of luck to begin with. And so they discount it um, and they say, oh, you know, they were always good. But actually at the beginning... Generally, they have a period of time where they get lucky, they start winning. The winning generates an interest to greater study. Sometimes then, they, then the luck wins off a little bit, so they start losing, and now their competitive ego kicks in and they start training harder. So now they actually start becoming the better player that they thought they were. Yeah. And that's how they actually gained the edge. So they were actually quite lucky in the beginning, and that's the case with almost all uh, pro players that started with nothing. Um, and actually all the top players in the world um, come from players who started with nothing. Yeah. Um, I remember reading an article, uh, David Walsh, obviously down in Tasmania. He, uh, one of his uh, eight lessons, uh, his eighth lesson talks about how luck plays an enormous role for the ultra successful and obviously propelling them to where they're at. And that's absolutely true. Um, look, uh, I, I can. Uh, if you want to talk about luck and uh, bankroll management, I can talk uh, uh, for hours on you know uh, known solutions like the Kelly theory and you know uh, optimizing your um, uh, bankroll and bet size as a function of variance. But I, I think rather than turning um, uh, this conversation to an overly technical uh, basis, which probably isn't going to advantage most of your readers or, or listeners. Um, I think a far more usable te- uh, usable tool really goes to this. If you're using poker not as your sole income but as a secondary income, then you can take risks with your role because um, your role can be fundamentally be replaced from your primary income, whether that be a job or whatever that uh, structure that might look like. Um, extreme bankroll management only comes to the fore when it becomes your primary income and it cannot be replaced. And then risk of ruin becomes such an overriding concept that it becomes clearly positive EV to not take Clearly positive EV bets. That means bets where your expected value in the long term is positive because of the bankroll risk. And here's an example. Once I heard this uh, little story um, uh, that occurred, and it's not in poker, but uh, it really goes to show you uh, what bankroll management uh, is. Uh, Kerry Packer was at uh, a casino junket, and even though he owned casinos, uh, he was a big, uh, well-known punter. And uh, when he was gambling overseas, he, he came across this other multimillionaire, and uh, the big multimillionaire is a very big personality, and he was gambling, gambling, and you know, talking it up a lot on the table. And Kerry Packer got a little bit offended, and he asks him, "So, what are you worth?" He asks the uh, smaller millionaire, and he, the guy says very proudly, "You know, I'm, I'm worth like." 10 million bucks and Carrie says I'll flip you for it yeah I've heard this story I'm, I'm sure you have yeah and in fact it's a famous story yeah but let me slightly alter the proposition imagine if Kerry had have said if it's heads 
I'll triple your pay from 10 million or 12 million, whatever that amount is, right, to 30 million. And if you lose, you only lose 10 million. Now we can see from the expected value of that transaction, right, 50% of the time he's going to win, assuming it's a fair coin, right? That means 50% of the time he gains $30 million. And 50% of the time he loses 10 million. That means on average, he gains 20 million per flip divided by two, right? So it's 10 million a flip per flip, right? Should he make the bet? I wouldn't. And that's a great thing because you say, I wouldn't, Jackson, from an intuitive gut position. Yeah. Right? But actually, mathematically, it, he says on average he makes $10 million every time he makes that bet. Yeah. And that is also clear and true. Yeah. And people who look at it from that viewpoint says, but hold a second, by not making that bet, that means he's losing the opportunity to make $10 million a transaction. Yeah. However, one of the things that they don't realise is if they go into Kelly formula a little bit deeper, by making that $10 million bet now on average where he earns that $10 million per average, the loss of that $10 million now means that he foregoes to make future potential bets that might be profitable with his existing $10 million over time, which might be positive value. So, for example... Um, he might make in his business, however he made that $10 million. If he still has the $10 million, he might then be able to go on and every year earn another million dollars a year so that in 10 years he might have $10 million. Obviously the compounding factor, but if it means that you're going to lose absolutely everything and, and start from scratch. And then now you have to start from scratch. Yeah. So he loses the opportunity. So actually not is he only just losing the $10 million now. He loses the opportunity to make positive EV bets in the future. Yeah. So this is a very important concept. So one of the things which goes back to the point is if the if the bet that you're making um, turns against you, if that means it precludes you making future positive EV bets, then as a general rule, you shouldn't be doing it. However, if you have a way to be able to make this bet, and even if it goes against you, you still have the ability to make future positive EV bets, then maybe it's within your risk profile. And I think this is a much more usable test without going into all the mathematics of, uh, you know, of Kelly formula and looking at standard deviation and variance and bankroll management, um, having a look at this. And so for most people who might play, who might have a job and who might earn $70,000 a year and they're thinking to the, uh, themselves, look, the amount of money that I've allocated to my poker might be currently at, I've built it up from a couple of hundred bucks to 10,000 bucks. And now I have this really soft cash game I can get into, but it's a thousand dollar buy-in event. Should I play it? You know, if you think you can beat that game and it's super soft, I say, yay, go do it. Because yes, worst case scenario, you lose a couple of grand and then you go away and you lick your wounds. But Best case scenario, you might win 10,000. And so your EV of uh, that night is significantly positive to you. And if the worst case happens, you can continue to build that role through your current methods and through your job because it's not your sole income. It's a very important concept. Over the course of your time playing poker, uh, have you noticed any uh, changes or trends in the landscape over the years? Uh, and how have these developments impacted your game specifically? Obviously, nowadays, the uh, GTO kids, game theory optimal or optimization, uh, and the use of technologies like Solver have, are a massive part with the textbook kids. That's a great question, Jackson. Um, how has uh, the current changes in the Affected industry... Affected you, yeah. Yeah, me and my uh, style of game. So, you know, game theory optimization or GTO um, is an interesting line. Um, because of the solvers, um, uh, most people uh, can now study a tree of decisions and they can essentially memorise the tree. But very few people have got the ability to understand the implications. So it's kind of like in chess, and I'm going to take it back to that a, a number of times in this conversation, I think, because chess, when you first learn chess, you get taught principles, after you get taught the principles of chess, then you get taught openings. 
And openings is so important because it's like it gives you the answers to the first few levels and everybody knows them. And if you don't know them, then you get mired into an area that is less studied. So the way I do it, uh, I, I guess to answer your question, the, the landscape in poker has changed dramatically. Um, the game on average has gotten tougher. However, very few people have truly mastered GTO because as with mastery in everything, mastery takes time. A lot of people, however, have learned to a certain level and studied GTO down a certain path. And this understanding allowed me to come up with my strategy. And my strategy was I play a gambit. A gambit in chess, which is most commonly used in chess, um, is where I deliberately play a losing line. Now this is a line where I don't have to lose a piece, but I choose that I take a non-optimal or less optimal path knowingly, deliberately. Like a loose aggressive? Well, more than that. Like a calling station. Well, the, the specific I'm just trying to place it into a category. Spe- we'll talk about the actual with. poker applications a little bit later. But deliberately a strategy, right, which now means that my opponents are in a realm that they don't know the answers. So if a person is a true master of GTO, you'll only lose equity because they will be able to adapt their play to maximally exploit you. And that's fine. So obviously the true defense against a great GTO player is to also play GTO and then really the only the rake wins. However, against an intermediate GTO player, one of the beautiful pathways of profit is you can lead them to a less studied area where they just, because in their book specifically it says, oh, you don't really need to study this very much because no one does it. And so once you move into this area, then... Find um, the cracks. Yes, and then you can find the cracks of profit. And profit in poker is actually all about being ahead of the curve. If you can uh, see what's coming and you can see the wave of poker players' knowledge, all you have to be is just one step ahead of the curve and you will profit massively. Once you are one of the many, it's very hard to do anything except grind a little profit. So that intuition, okay. What about uh, live tells? I love live tells. So I'm actually quite famous in Australia for my tells historically. Um, And, you know, you can uh, utilise the Helmuth defence, which is, you know, the hat, the caps, the glasses, uh, the hands in front of your um, mouth, and front part of your and bottom part of your face. But, you know, what people don't really understand is the theory of tells in poker. It's a, it's a contest of information. A lot of people should be wearing dark glasses if they feel they're giving more information away than, they're obtain, than the information they're obtaining from their opponents. So um, when I was younger, my eyesight was really good. And I could tell very subtle physical tells on my opponents. And I would be able to make what seemed like miraculous reads um, on tells, right? Um, And the first basic levels of tells is you should study those works, right? Um, I think Mike Cairo uh, is the first of those uh, groups. uh, And he's got a book of tells and... um, it's a classic work. It's quite old, but there are so many photos and they're very subtle changes. And he, he did so much fantastic work. Um, I actually met him uh, in Vegas one year, but, uh, you know, that work is irreplaceable. And right now people aren't really not studying tells because at the high level they're all studying GTO. So there's actually opportunity and profit to be made. I find when I play against uh, top-level modern players, um, one of the edges I have in a live game 
is I talk them out of their routine and they're trying to interact with me because they know of me. So they want to communicate and they want to, uh, I guess, be involved because they find it exciting, you know, to play against someone of well-known reputation. But then uh, online where they might be a superstar, uh, that online aspect gives them protection because they can be themselves and, you know, people can't see what their cards are. But there is a physicality to poker. And uh, for me, the, the most profitable tell over all the decades is there's a particular aspect when you're talking to a person. And I'm sure you've seen it before. It's when um, when you go into a physical confrontation and you suddenly say something and then suddenly in their eyes, they're fearful. And you can see it. like It's like blood drains away from the skin. Well, in poker, you can do this too, uh, especially if you ask them particular questions and you talk about particular hands and they realise you know and then suddenly... And, and it's a tell I have never been wrong about. It's, it's, so, um, it's so chemically based. Uh, I've never seen a person who's successfully been able to give a false tell of draining the blood from their face um, in pretend fear. So I know when I've got this, I must call their big bluff. No matter how much, uh, even if I've got King Eye, I'm calling it. <laughs> uh, how do you approach studying and improving your game? Uh, are there any resources or methods you find particularly helpful? That's a great question, Jackson. Um, so studying in the game of poker um, actually really depends on the level you're at. Um, if people are beginners, um, I urge... Um, that people start with books. I know it's so old now, you know, uh, people like videos because it's easy. And there are great resources that you can come and they get smashed with GTO and they uh, say, in this situation, do this, do that. And that's great, but you learn by rote. Um, Whereas in books, uh, you get taught by concept and theories and foundation. And later on, once you're past that, then you can apply um, your rote learning. The problem with learning by rote is that the landscape changes. In poker, it changes all the time. So something that's correct today may not and will most likely will not be correct tomorrow. Sure. And because of that change, if you learn by rote, it means unless you're constantly studying, you can never be at your best. However, if you develop a theoretical basis, then with a little bit of fine tuning, you can always be near the top. Uh, and that's what happened for me. You know, I took a long time away from poker and everybody believed that when I came home, I would be lost in the new poker world with GTO. And, you know, I had no access to technology or computers or anything like that. And then as soon as I came home, I just win a tournament. Boom, straight away. Is this referring to your time away from the poker scene? That's correct. Sure. You know, and it was a decade away, right? That's a long time, right? During a, a, a big uh, computer boom, a new tech, a new rise of technology. The new wave. The new wave. So I was absent for all of that, right? And to come away and to just crush it in cash games to the tune of hundreds of thousands, to, cash it, uh, to crush it in tournaments, um, yeah, that was quite shocking to people. Um, and I was able to make the transition because my basis in theory was strong and um, with a little bit of study in GTO, I'm able to bridge the gap and then go beyond. Were resources available while you were away, like obviously reading books? Could you get those resources? It's very difficult. Very difficult? Very, very difficult. Yeah, okay. Um, so obviously we've spoken about intuition studying, uh, are there any other essential skills or qualities that you believe uh, are required for success in the game? You know, it's a funny thing. You say essential skills. You know, I, I guess once again the question is at what level of success do you want to get to? Well, one takeaway from the APL uh, in Melbourne, what was that, March? That's where I met you. You are in line, uh, I think you were firing another bullet into the Centurion and I was in the uh, – Double double bullet turbo deep stack. You know, okay. I was playing a hundred and fifty dollar game. You're in the twenty five hundred dollar games. Uh, I was, I think, we're down to the last two or three tables. And Shireen Vijayram, uh, obviously, he uh, won the Aussie Millions back in twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. 
I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, his table talk was next level mm. and just extracting information from other players. I thought that was incredible. And looking back on it now, I I don't think you can learn that out of a book. That's almost like by nature how you were raised. Uh, just, yeah, your inquisitive nature as, a, as an individual. I mean, you know, I, I guess it must seem like that. Um, but it's like anything. Um, if you're not trained in a particular um in a particular doctrine uh, and a person's had, let's say, 5,000 hours of practice and study in a field, yep. then in those areas it will look like what he's doing is at a level of expertise. Yep. But actually uh, that level of study probably puts him at around journeyman level. Um, poker is like any other level of expertise, to get to a serious level um, of skill and knowledge takes about the same amount of time and study. Um, it, it takes probably... What, the 10,000 hours? Yeah, let's talk 10,000 hours. Let, let's discount 10,000 hours because you can do an activity for 10,000 hours for 40,000 hours and still never get beyond competency. Um, and, in fact, uh, I, I played another game, backgammon, and I, I have since I was very young. Um, and the way you study... Uh, is very important because I'm sure everyone knows about the guys who have been playing backgammon for all their lives, you know, and they're old men now, but they can only play at a certain level. And uh, my backgammon, when I was 17, 16, I, I played at a very high competitive level. And it's because I, w- I had a proclivity to study. And so uh, in this activity, just like in any other sport, um, your how you take to training, you know, and the business of improving yourself. Um, that's what will uh, be the difference between success and failure. You can play poker for 20 years and still be average. And there's another guy, a kid, who can train and study for two years and be your better by a margin that you will never overcome because, you know, you don't have that proclivity to study um, and to want to improve yourself. And the question is, right, you, you know it within yourself, it's when something happens in poker, um, do you feel the urge of going away and analysing it to death and looking at the math behind it, going to better poker players and finding out the why? Or do you just want to talk to your mates to confirm, oh, look, I did everything right. And, oh, look, how unlucky I am. Oh, woe is me. Yeah. And because think, if you're the yeah. second type, which is like 99% of the people, mm. you're never going to improve. You're going to be at your current level of incompetence. Yeah. Whereas if you're the first type, sooner or later you will move up the ranks of players and you will around you surround yourself by players who are superior to you in skill and knowledge and they will start teaching you, not even by coming out to teach you, but you will learn by osmosis. You know, you will just become better because you will be a, a, a exposed to concepts you have never been exposed to before. Yeah. That it's that whole concept of iron sharpens iron. Yes. Once you're surrounded by more people, and we we're talking about this with Dean Cathy on a on an earlier episode, uh, playing you know the two games of pub poker in Shepparton for maybe six hours a week if you're lucky, versus grinding ten hours a week at the casino cash games, uh, building a team around you that are like-minded and are able to see your game from another perspective, um, you're all all going to improve together. And honestly, uh, that's how to improve when you know nothing. Yeah. Right? If you want to improve when you're in an extreme level, it actually means at your, when you're already at a high level, um, most improving happens when you're not playing. It happens uh, when so you're just that reflection. Uh, reflection doesn't Journaling do it, you know, or... that because that's just looking at a mirror, right? You, yeah. you can only, it's hard for you to learn from yourself, right? It's deep analysis, which um, uh, you have to become savant at particular tools. You have to uh, put yourself into peer groups whose uh, knowledge uh, is further than yours. Yep. Um, and you have to open up your own ego to accept the fact that almost everything you do is wrong. And the reasons you do it is wrong. 
And you have to truly want to be better because once it's only when you empty your cup that uh, you can fill it full with all the good stuff. Because if you're already a full cup and you try and put more liquids in, the more, the new liquid is just going to bounce off. Yeah. And so you have to let go of your current assumptions in poker if you want to become a better poker player. Yeah. Because almost every single person um, are bad poker players. It's just the level of bad is the difference. And there even is. at pros level, you know, there are terrible pro players all the time. Yeah, I know. I, I've just got I, I, make, I make, a, I make a, a life out of dis, uh, I made a career out of destroying pros for a living. You know, um, yeah. So, and also the other big thing is at the top levels, um, you have to remove your ego and understand that it's a business, and you should play to where the profit is. Whereas when I was a young man, you know. I travelled the world seeking the toughest opponents in the world, trying to prove I was one of the best in the world. Um, and there's not much profit <laughs> in that. <laughs> but it does satiate the ego somewhat. <laughs> uh, how do you handle downswings or periods of adversity? <laughs> well, they're, they're totally different things. Downswings um, you can manage with bankroll management. If you uh, do your bankroll management well, you should be able to handle every downswing because it's within your capacity to do so. And once you understand at a deep level bankroll management, then you don't get emotional about downswings because every time you have an upswing, you understand that inherently built in the upswing is also the downswing. It's just within a range. So every time I execute out, I understand that this is within the range of results that is possible and a, a sequence of probability events. So that's how I handle the downswing. But downswings in life are completely different. You know, um, things happen which we face adversity in all of our lives. Health. Health, um, wealth, um, loss of relationships and pe important people in your life. Like everyone, you know, everything is transitionary in life. So everything that you hold of value in this life will pass, including yourself. And so I guess, you know, you can grieve or you can be broken and that is debilitating or you can use that opportunity as a learning tool and grow and become stronger because we don't grow in our comfort zone. We don't get stronger doing things that we've done a million times before. We grow and become stronger by going outside of our comfort zone and taking on pain and hardship. That's how we improve. So that's what I use it for. I use it for opportunities to grow. It's good. <laughs> I don't know about good. It's just it's what I do. But it's, it's good. Like it's probably, it, I think everyone can relate to that. Um, what are some uh, common misconceptions uh, about poker and just in general that you'd like to address? <laughs> that's a great question. Okay, common misconceptions just about poker. Just to lighten poker. it up a little bit. <laughs> All right. Everyone thinks poker is fun. <laughs> and being a pro is enormous amounts of fun. And I'm telling you, right, as a person who was a pro for a long, long time uh, where I've travelled the world and seen all these crazy things and lived a crazy life where there are, like, strippers and hookers and just, you know, like in the middle of an orgy or, you know, sometimes you're balling up with billionaires. Um. Life as a poker player is relatively boring. Uh, in fact, most days... It's not glamorous. Well, from the outside, it looks glamorous. Yeah, but you know, grinding that, away. Yeah, most of the uh, thing, like people don't understand. It's a job, like mm. all other jobs. Um, when you go and you go spend a couple of weeks in a hotel, in a nice five, six-star hotel somewhere, you might see that as a pleasure. But if you're living out of a hotel... 250 days a year, I'm telling you, that is not a pleasure. It is a hardship because you're just living out of your suitcase. As soon as you land, I, I learned to sleep in a horror, in an upright position. I drop my bags off and I go compete. Yes, I've travelled to so many countries, but how many times have I really seen much of the country except casinos? Um, yes, 
uh, almost every party where you go to where there's celebrities and all the food and alcohol is all free, but, you know, and other things, but in truth, you can only consume so many things, you know, and hedonism, it's a trap. It doesn't lead to eventual happiness. And once you go down that rabbit hole deep enough, you realise, hey, it's the same as everything. And for me, the way I take my pleasures is um, I, my pleasures are really simple. You know, it's in spending a little bit of time with family, um, cooking for friends and family and people I care about, um, yeah, just really simple things. Simple pleasures in life. Yeah. 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 So here, here's something. So I was super, super fat. I'm, I'm back to being fat now. Um, but uh, there was a period only just 24 months ago I, I, I'd gotten super fit, fitter than I'd ever been in my life. I'm 50 now, by the way. Um, you don't look it. <laughs> I, I, but 24 months ago. You I take was care run- of yourself, obviously. I, I was running half marathons. Yeah. Half marathons every week just because I could. Yeah. That's madness, you know. Um, and there was a feeling that I got just by being in the moment, you know, taking joy out of life. So, you know, I guess, I guess the life of poker, the grass is always greener on the other side. Because you you, you haven't lived that life, um, you know, it looks glamorous. And, yes, you get to meet cool people. I have so many cool people in my network and I admire them, you know. Uh, but in the end, happiness comes from within, you know, and you have to be with happy with who you are and who you have in your close personal relationships. Um, I know it sounds all boring. Uh, I, I, mate, I, I find it interesting. Uh, at the moment, obviously, the World Series of Poker is on. Uh, I'm watching Daniel Negreanu's vlog. Uh, obviously, that is a uh, another stream of income for him, as well as the contender's clothing. But it's just amazing. Like He lives 30 minutes away from the strip, but he's opting to stay at the hotel or in a room that is labelled a steam room which doesn't even have a bathroom or shower facilities, like he, he's grinding away. Uh, yeah, it's a, a, a whole different lifestyle to those that, you know, don't know much about it. So I know Negrano. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, I have to say, um, I mean, he's been a famous player for a long time, but um, 15 years ago, his game skills were not very strong. You know, he was a good instinctual player. Yep. But I would say that of all the players uh, that have gone through the GTO transition, he is one of the most successful players who have done so. I see the lines now he's taking, and they are very much trained lines. He is a much better player now than he has ever been in his life. And I respect that, and I, I say kudos to him. Because he's obviously done a lot of training with a lot of other people, um, you know, and he must have done a lot of work on his game to get to the level that he's at. I think at the moment he's got about seven min caches and we're up to day 20, 22 of the vlog. Mm. Uh, most of those obviously being in Omaha. Uh, it seems in going back to uh, downswings and adversity, the gap between bracelets for him was between his first marriage. Like that had obviously broken him to some extent. Uh, he's won a couple of Poker Go championships, still chasing another bracelet. But yeah, it, it, the comparison, it definitely sort of underlines as to, you know, how you perform on the table because you're living within your own head whilst you're there, uh, monitoring uh, health and nutrition. I spoke with uh Benjamin Young and uh, Tom Bauer in relation to that at the APL PT in Aubrey. Um, but yeah, it, it all plays a, a massive part at the end of the day, obviously being on tilt, if you're stuck in traffic, you know, you're going to be tilt. So it's, it's interesting. So one of the things I guess uh, that, that, that must be how it looks like from the outside, but um, I would say um, Jackson, that it's a little bit different as a pro um, variance in poker it's just a, it's a fact. That's what happens. Variance in tournaments is so much greater. And so, but the difference with it is a number of things. Number one, if you're a better player, it doesn't mean that um, you're going to definitely defeat your opponents. That doesn't, that isn't what it means at all. It just means that you have 
an incremental edge. So let's say, for example, in a 100-people tournament, instead of having one ticket equivalent, you might have the equivalent of a number of tickets because of your skill difference, which accumulates over time. It doesn't mean he's going to win. It's not like the tennis where there's that big a difference. Um, the, you know, the, that's why in the World Series main event, we've seen so many unknowns who win the event every single year. Otherwise, it would be dominated by pros. The pros are clearly better, but they're just outnumbered by the unknown. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is the reason why um, sooner or later Negrano is going to win more bracelets is because he's in more tournaments. You know, he gets sponsored in. And so per year he might play, I don't know, 100 events. 100 events a year. Well, if you're playing 100 events a year, I don't know how many major tournaments you play. Yeah, this is honestly my first, like, serious year of like right getting down but imagine if you're playing a play, hundred yeah. events a year of ten thousand dollar events yeah and how well, long has he been doing it for a long time yeah, so there of, you go. of course the accumulative equity that he has in tournaments right means that he must have more bracelets mm. you know um so will he win more bracelets i believe he will you know Some but, the, but the question is is he a better player I believe he also is a better player. And I think kudos to him, you know. And the business of poker isn't just in the business of the ta- how well you play on the table. This is a really important concept. A pro player di- is made in so many different ways. I remember meeting this young French kid. Uh, this is when I was a pro player already of some repute. Um, and I made my money primarily by ch- uh, going around the world and punching on with other top-rated players in heads-up situations. So, uh, you know, uh, so that activity is just filled with ego and hubris and things like that. This kid, on the other hand, right, he accepted he was a grinder and he would play 50 cents a dollar or a dollar two dollars and he would grain 24 tables at a time, right, just to try and win a couple of BB. But at his level, and this is 13 years ago, right, he would make 150000 a year, you know, just consistently. Almost no variance month to month. The variance was, could he bang in, you know, 300,000 that hands that month or 600,000 hands? And it really all just went to work ethic, right? He didn't uh, play any spectacular poker, any huge crazy reads. He just applied a very formulaic um, style of poker, a winning style at the lower stakes. But he was as professional a poker player as you would at the top levels, guys who are punching on and trying to prove they're the best player in the world, right? In poker, there are many paths to becoming a professional poker player. For example, Joe Hashem, one of my friends. uh, I met Tony before, his brother. Yes, yes. Um, Tony's very flamboyant. (laughs) But Joe, uh, when he won the World Series, you know, he was an amateur player. And, uh, you know, I mean, whoever wins, wins, they win, no problems. But I believe, for me, the most amount of respect I actually gave to Joe Hashem is after he won, he was able to treat the process of being ambassador of poker, both of Poker Stars and of Crown Casino, and gave it its uh, its due time and requirements so that he became one of the biggest ambassadors of poker that ever was. And he earned in contracts, uh, in endorsements, in money that actually went bigger than the amount that he won. And he won like 10 million net, which is huge money, you know. Um, and for him to win more money in endorsements, you know, they don't just give those money in endorsements for nothing or to be a pretty face. Um, but he did it through work. So maybe he's not a grinder. But he, in my opinion, is still making a very good living out of being a professional ambassador, poker ambassador. And that, to me, is also being a poker pro. So I guess my point is there are many pathways to being a poker professional. Do you see any younger ambassadors coming through into the game nowadays? I mean... Obviously, we lost all Brunson last month. Yeah, I Uh, I saw that, heard that. Yeah. I mean, look, Doyle's... Joe, Joe would be of age now. 
Doyle, he he had a good run. He had a good he had a good inning. I mean, mm. he lived a long time. He achieved a lot in his life. Yep. You know, I I, I wish I, I could go with that sort of record. You know, um, I mean, people mourn his passing, but for me, I, I celebrate his life. You know, the celebrate the life that he lived. He sure. did. He did. He lived an amazing life. You know, he used to be, uh, uh, you know, almost pro basketballer. This is in his youth. You know. Um, to the question of who are young up-and-comers in prose. Look, there are young up-and-comers, but the most consistent thing that I see with young pros going from uh, every few years is that there are young kids who are mi- winning millions every year, but then five years later, they're broke. They've, they've actually gone. They've <laughs> they're actually out. poorer yeah. than before they win the money <laughs> because when you first win... And because they're young, they've never had money before. Yeah. It's hard to deal with that, like, mini celebrity status to deal with because you think it's going to rain manna from heaven forever. Yeah. And it doesn't. And so you need to be conservative. But they're at an age when risk is part of their character. Otherwise they wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah, it's within their nature. And so um, it's difficult for them. I think real successes uh, survive the test of time. And that's why I mentioned Joe Hashem because I believe he has, like he is a true poker professional. And, you know, people, especially the young kids, they might boo him now because, you know, uh, he's um, not a GTO superstar as the young kids see it. But, you know, these GTO superstars, they're going to come and go, Right. Whereas 10 years from now, uh, Joe Hashem is still going to be there and he deserves of that respect, yep. you know. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm surrounded by young superstars all the time. Um, but who will keep their money? It's unclear. I think um, Fedor Holt seems to be doing quite a good job of that. I, I want to see Aussie guys. I want yeah. to see local guys who are, are superstars, you know. That probably uh, leads into an open question in that uh, obviously the legislation has changed in Victoria specifically, poker-wise. Where do you see poker moving forward in uh, Victoria and even in Australia? Well, that's a great question. You know, I actually think that it's a mistake for the government to have taken the position that they have about um, poker within Australia. Uh, we're, we're not going to say who it benefits. Um, you know, people can look into that themselves. But uh, as an industry, it means that players over here in Australia um, will not develop at the same speed as players in other parts of the world. And weirdly enough that we have more restrictions upon uh, Australians than we do uh, in uh, compared to other nations, which is crazy because we consider ourselves to be an open market type of country, whereas this is obviously a very controlled and market or state-orientated activity, and that's what, you know, the government has said it to be. I believe the future, um, you know, I, I guess there I know of some changes that are coming with, uh, that um, may uh, move where poker is, you know, uh, away from a gaming activity into imagine poker as a team activity where there's no gambling per se. And so there's, uh, it, it would fit within these regulations. Whether or not, you know, this um, would be sufficient, I don't know. But I know of a professional tour that, that that's coming. I mean, imagine that. Imagine like a professional t- uh, tour uh, which is like the AFL or uh, the Basketball League. Are you referring right? to like the APL? Or... No, no, a pro tour. Oh, really? Uh, so it, it, can you even imagine that, right? So a recognize and, and so it's a closed group, right? Yeah. You can't just enter. It's like right? a PGA even if you have it, or live That's golf. exactly right, yeah. right? So imagine a professional tour, right, with owners mm. of teams and the teams are made of players which get selected by draft, Right. Yeah. Which get you know. I mean, that's an entirely different thing, right? It's like your fantasy football, but people do that's it with right. the fantasy poker, and I think they're doing it over in uh, Vegas at the moment. I mean, does that sound exciting? Yeah. 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 So we do see some things like that um, 
in the pipeline, you know, and we don't know what uh, the future of that's going to look like, right? But I do know that there are things in that world that, that have started developing and that would comply with the regulations because there's no direct gambling, there's no direct buy-ins, sure. there's no direct, you know, uh, remuneration back. Um, but I believe long-term that it's, uh, that the position has uh, that the government has taken is unsustainable because I believe it's anti-market. Um, and they might feel it's being protective of Australian um, potential gamblers. But, you know, we're, uh, you know, we can see um, that taking a protective view um, in a free market position never works, you know. Um, throughout history, uh, many governments have tried it, you know, and we seem to be one of the extreme uh, nations in the world uh, taking a position. And Australia is not generally an extreme nation, right? It's not a North Korea, yeah. right? So why are we taking this extreme viewpoint on gaming? It's very weird to me. I, I just don't quite, uh, don't quite understand. Especially with the poker machines. You know, and, and so this is the problem. So they put poker, this game of skill, in with pokey machines, which is it's a pure randomised event where the venue for every transaction gets something like 17% for every dollar entered, right? Uh, and so with reiterations, right, um, the house ends up with all the money. But poker inherently is an activity where the competitors are competing in an activity where skill over time ends up being the primary difference. And the house on average takes a fair market price for setting the facilities and enabling a fair game. Yeah. Right? So uh, now, of course, my, uh, one might say, well, actually, uh, in Australia, the cost of that uh, uh, game in the illegal, currently illegal online uh, gaming that's uh, available is that its price is actually quite high. And I say that the reason why it's so high is because the government has taken a prohibition line. And so because now they've driven out all the um, reputable suppliers of uh, poker gaming, now all of the cowboys and the dark forces um, uh, setting illegal lines of gaming. And, of course, for that extra risk, they are, uh, they're, you know, charging a greater than normalised price sure. uh, for in terms of rake, et cetera. Yeah. And that's why you, when you go to a play in a local private house game, you know, the rake there is just killing you, you know, whereas if we had, um, you know, a, a large amount of card rooms, um, you know, it, the rake would be normalised. And obviously there's other challenges too, uh, shortage of dealers, tends to be uh, a massive one. You know, uh, if there was an industry uh, where dealers could um, earn reasonable rates of income, there would be a greater uh, level of dealers. Um, the problem is uh, Crown has taken a position, uh, which are the primary uh, supplier and employer of uh, poker dealers in Victoria, um, that their emphasis is not on poker right now. You know, it's more on the Royal Commission and compliance. And and fair, fair uh, you know, I, I understand their position. You know, look at all the things that have happened to them uh, lately. Their current licensing is under threat. So for them to take that uh, position is absolutely fair, but it means that a large proportion of the poker dealers have been unemployed. And, of course, poker dealers who, you know, that's their primary method of income. They have to seek work somewhere else. And so, you know... They get work where they can. Yeah. And I can't blame them, are they? I mean, they've they got families to feed. They've got mortgages to pay. Yeah. Well, good, mate. Well, uh, I think we're right on time. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I guess the big thing that I'd really like to add is I think there's something really exciting coming in the team poker and a professional tour. I just haven't seen it. And I'm dying to see a professional tour of a group of pros where we see on TV the same pros every week where we can have stats on them every single week where, where it's like the NFL and the basketball and the <coughs> baseball. And we can see um, deep analysis because when you've got something like WOSOP where, you know, it's 8,000 players, most of them randoms, 
And we don't really know who they are, so you can't build an understanding of what poker is. If we have uh, the same amount of pros and we have greater commentary uh, supported by greater statistics for the viewers, I think that could open a new wave of, um, uh, of poker TV, you know, which would be very valuable for the whole world. And there's some products in development now. And, um, yeah, I just really hope that that ends up coming into being. Awesome, mate. Thank you. No problems. Cheers. Thank you very much, Jackson. See you guys. Bye.